the inner critic living up to its name of criticism releases cortisol in us. Cortisol is the stress hormone. And when our bodies are under stress, they are wired to move quickly as if we're under threat because we are from the inside. Peace and abundance, y'all. Welcome to the Creation for Liberation podcast, where we express wisdom to decolonize creativity, mindfully care for ourselves and our communities, and incite an inner revolution for outer transformation. I'm your host, Chetna Mehta. And as a third culture kid, artist, and wellness facilitator, I work with brown and black women and women of the diaspora to reclaim our creative inheritance and to actualize and embody our most aware, aligned, and connected selves. My guests and I will ignite you and invite you to make, move, and manifest your liberation for a world of compassion and connection, one creation at a time. Peace and warmth to you, good, beautiful people. Welcome back to the Creation for Liberation podcast. Today on My Inner Critic Has a Backseat Only. Let's start per usual with what's been offering inspiration lately. With the holiday known as Thanksgiving having just passed, there are a couple of Native resources that offered me some important education on the time of year, on the actual history between colonizers, aka pilgrims, and Natives in the past that has now become Thanksgiving, and what the holiday means to Native Americans today. Now, don't get me wrong. For me, it is a day of celebration where I get to be with my family and my family friends. And while every day is benefited from a practice of gratitude, I do really appreciate my family friend rituals where we gather and we feast and we go around and share what we are grateful for. And I am certainly thankful for that practice. And at the same time, it's important to be aware of how the history of Thanksgiving affects other folks, especially when the narrative around what Thanksgiving is involves them directly. One organization called Spirit of the Sun, an indigenous woman-led nonprofit in Denver, Colorado, is working to empower Native communities and especially youth and young adults. They recently hosted a virtual panel on decolonizing Thanksgiving with five amazing educators, activists, and humans in the local community. The second resource that I want to share here is the All My Relations podcast about representation of Indigenous people hosted by two Native American activists and educators, Matika Wilbur and Adrian Keene. The podcast goes into food sovereignty, sacred sexuality, and most recently, the truth about Thanksgiving featuring Matika's nephew, who's 14 or 13, I want to say. I was introduced to this podcast in my yoga teacher training with Satya Yoga Co-op last year, and it's been an important listen for me since. So I've linked both in the show notes, so be sure to check them out. Learn about this holiday that has passed, still relevant, and follow what they're doing because they're putting out a lot of amazing resources for Native folks and non-Native folks. 
before we get into the juiciness of this episode, I want to share with you that the three-month Abundant Creativity program is starting again in January of 2022. The three-month Abundant Creativity program is a consultation series individually and in group that allows us to reclaim our creative inheritance. We draw on decolonial wisdom, on resurgence work, on liberatory practice to leverage our creativity however it wants to flow as a portal for healing, for deep connection, and for freedom. I love this offering. It's been my favorite offering out of Mosaic Eye over the last four years during which it has grown and evolved and deepened and expanded. We even have an alumni community of over 150 femmes and women all around the world. And I'm so grateful to be in community with folks who are intentional about how they see their creativity and what they're doing in the world. So check out the program. I will link it also in the show notes and feel free to apply. So the exploration in this episode is centered on the inner critic and more importantly, how we can claim our agency despite it. So what is the inner critic? It's pretty self-explanatory, but let's actually deepen it a little bit more because it's pretty freaking deep. The inner critic is a universal shadow archetype. It's universal in that we all have one, no matter who we are. For example, Beyonce, Queen Bey, has also got an inner critic who apparently dislikes her feet and her ears and the fact that she often gets a runny nose while performing. (laughs) It's a shadow in that we don't always want to admit that we have an inner critic. More importantly, our inner critic would never talk to somebody else, say a friend or someone we care about, the way it talks to us. And it's archetypical because we have evolved to have inner critics. It's serving us in some way, otherwise we would not still have it, be very much a part of all of our psyches. And we'll talk more about that shortly. The inner critic can be so normalized in us that we don't even realize that it's not us. Rather, that it's actually a separate entity that just happens to be a part of us. It's so normalized that we begin to think that the inner critic voice is who we are or is the navigator of our ship, the driver of our vehicles. Only when we practice becoming aware of it as a separate entity that just happens to be a part of us, can we actually remember that it's not who we are? Carl Jung, the fundamental psychiatrist who brought dream work and shadow work and archetypical work to Western psychology from a lot of indigenous wisdom, said himself, whatever is rejected from the self appears in the world as an event. And until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. In order to make the inner critic conscious, we have to be observant of how the inner critic shows up. So let's talk about two things, feelings 
and sensations in the body. The inner critic tends to induce similar feelings in all of us. Again, there's a universality to it. So it's pretty mediocre and ordinary in terms of what the inner critic is preoccupied with, how it makes us feel, what it causes in our bodies. So I just want to say that we're not unique in our inner critics. The inner critic, for me, tends to induce feelings of inadequacy, anxiety, demotivation, isolation, so much isolation. Dread, if the inner critic is ratting its mouth, I dread what's coming forth. I dread social interactions. I dread meetings. I dread life because inner critic has a lot to say about all of it. When it comes to sensations in the body, because our bodies are constantly responding to our thoughts and vice versa, for me, the inner critic triggers sensations in my body of tightness. I feel very small. Even just as I said that, my posture kind of curved inward. I feel rigid, tense, paralyzed, and heavy. So heavy. Sometimes before I even know what the inner critic is saying, I feel the feelings or I feel the sensations. Sometimes I feel the sensations before I can even name the feelings. And sometimes I can acknowledge that I feel a certain way and my body is reflecting that. I invite you to use the feelings wheel to identify the feelings that come up when the inner critic is in the room. To notice how your body responds in those feelings And this is a way to expand awareness again of when the inner critic is present. I will link the feelings wheel in the show notes. It's a beautiful resource that we can engage with in so many different ways. And really it's meant to expand our emotional awareness, our emotional vocabulary, and our emotional intelligence when we're feeling all the feelings in any given moment. And in this particular case, to expand our awareness of what we tend to feel when the inner critic is on our backs. The inner critic also has a bunch of very on-brand traits and tendencies that it leans on. (laughs) Let's talk about five here. By the way, I've been working on a book about compassion with the inner critic, where we play more with these inner critic tendencies and others. So stay tuned in 2022 for more on the book. But for now, these are five ways that the inner critic makes itself present. One, black and white thinking. Two, motivating, but actually really invalidating. Three, highly triggered by uncertainty. Four, internalizing of oppressive value systems around us. Five, hyper-protective based on the past. Let's delve into it more. Black or white thinking. The inner critic has a very strong binary sense of morality. Things are either good or bad, right or wrong, selfish or selfless, blue or red, us or them, it goes on. In this way, the inner critic is highly comparative. It's either one or the other and nowhere in between nuance is not something that the inner critic has the intelligence for. When it comes to comparing mind, comparison is evolutionarily human. 
It's helped us assess where we stand in the tribe and act accordingly for our belonging and our survival. Yet today, it's harmfully perpetuated by forces like social media, white supremacy, and patriarchy, for example, that make us so competitive and driven from a place of inadequacy, fear, and scarcity. Our inner critic may compare ourselves to someone else, say someone we know or don't know. The inner critic may compare us to a past version of ourselves or to our past situations in life. The inner critic may compare us to an idealized or quote-unquote perfect self, one that we are trying to fix ourselves into. The inner critic is really good at making judgments here. When things are black or white, it's very simple for the inner critic to say what is good or bad, right or wrong. You pretty much label something, categorize it, and limit it. And because of its simplistic swiftness in its judgments, it can also feel quite convincing. The inner critic might say, You're wasting your time here. You suck at this. You're never going to be as good as them. Why even bother? What's the point? You don't have any style or aesthetic. You look like you're trying to copy them. So a lot of comparison, a lot of invalidating, leaving very little room for the beautiful shades of all other colors outside of black or white, metaphorically and literally speaking. The inner critic is invalidating in general. But the thing that we get caught up with sometimes is that it seems motivating. Sometimes folks say, well, if I wasn't listening to my inner critic, would I ever get any shit done? The no pain, no gain, sleep when I'm dead, need to be productive, the toxic masculinity or the toxic capitalism is such a strategy of the inner critic. The inner critic could indeed in that way offer a very fiery motivation, one that lights up our asses to go hard and fast. It could say things like, You need to be better than them. You're going to fail the test. When are you going to study? You're not swollen enough. You need to go to the gym. And in this way, the inner critic living up to its name of criticism releases cortisol in us. Cortisol is the stress hormone. And when our bodies are under stress, they are wired to move quickly as if we're under threat because we are from the inside. Our bodies get pushed into the sympathetic nervous system of fight, flight, freeze, or appease. When we're immersed in a patriarchal culture, the norm of the inner critic's fiery, quote-unquote, tough love motivational style is what we're all swimming in. It's no wonder chronic fatigue and burnout are such common experiences for people, including young people in school and certainly people who identify as, quote-unquote, ambitious or driven. I invite us to really look at this concept and practice of, quote-unquote, tough love. Where does it come from? How does it actually serve us? Maybe it gives us a bout of motivation, slaps us into reality or whatever reality 
serves us to be more of something we happen to not be? How is it serving us in the long run? If we're operating according to this pace, this urgency, this stress, we are moving at the pace of patriarchy by ignorantly succumbing to the inner critic's abusive motivational style. Cancel culture is a great example of the short-term motivation that the inner critic projects. Sometimes the inner critic is criticizing us, and sometimes it's criticizing everything outside of us to avoid the shit that we are dealing with internally. While canceling someone who behaved harmfully is a reactive and fiery response that can indeed produce some immediate change in how that person shows up or continues the behavior overtly, canceling or shaming someone causes more defensiveness and dishonesty, hiding. At the same time, I know that from my understanding, those who cancel others likely feel incredibly powerless within really painful, oppressive experiences. And that powerlessness is valid. As a culture, we are still evolving how we cultivate positive social and systemic change. And we're all figuring it out, I guess. What I can say is we can't ignore how our own inner critics are affecting how we show up to our liberation work. When we talk about the inner critic, we are talking about personal and interpersonal work, which is within our agency. Our personal and interpersonal work is a foundation for systemic work and change. J. Krishnamurthy, ancestor and spiritual philosopher who I've probably quoted on here before and will probably quote him many other times, said, without inner revolution, outer action is repetitive. By expanding our awareness and compassion with our inner critic, we affect an inner revolution that impacts how we approach change outside of us. The third important trait to mention here with the inner critic is that it's highly triggered by uncertainty. When we live in a world that is full of paradox, contradiction, multiple realities, and unanswered questions, the inner critic gets triggered a lot. <laughs> Uncertainty inflates the inner critic's compulsive need to be heard and to attempt to protect us. More on this later. So when we're venturing into a new relationship or opportunity or when events in the world are painfully uncertain, i.e. a global pandemic, the inner critic goes berserk. When there's a big black hole before us, the inner critic tries tirelessly <laughs> to fill it with its own narratives and strong beliefs based on what we've experienced in the past or on our worst fears. Creative practice, for example, is a huge trigger for the inner critic. Creativity is risky and uncertain, bold, adventurous, imaginative, world-building even in small and big ways. So of course the inner critic will insert itself heavily to try to manage and control for that uncertainty. This is why I love teaching and playing with the inner critic through creative practice. Creative practice is a microcosm for life. <laughs> so it's a pretty fun way 
to draw on lessons and wisdom for life through creative practice. And that could be in anything, through crafting a meal or creating a painting or a song or a poem or a movement. We definitely go more into this in the three-month abundant creativity program where we play and highlight the inner critic and also our wiser, kinder, encouraging voices. So more on that piece later. Another tendency of the inner critic is to internalize oppressive voices and systems around us and becomes an internal oppressor. The inner critic is a sponge. It absorbs aspects and dynamics of our environment like a two-year-old child. Do you ever notice how some of the shit that your inner critic tells you feels so incongruent to who you believe you are? For example, my inner critic says things that are so judgmental and demeaning to women who are strong, sexually expressive, and freely wild-natured. It's embarrassing for me to say this here, but I know that it's my inner critic saying shit like, Wow, she's so extra. Why is she always flaunting her body? Yet at the same time, I consider myself a feminist, a wild woman, and a seeker of liberation through my femininity, sexuality, and sensuality. Hello, incongruence. I work with creatives whose inner critics put a lot of faith in cash-is-king value systems. And if their art practice is not making them money, their inner critics stop them from making art. At the same time, they feel so much pleasure when they give themselves time to play, move, sing, or write just for fun, or to get to know their own creative thoughts and expressions. And what's more true for them is that art making offers them the currencies of catharsis, healing, connection, joy, fulfillment. Both are true. And sometimes the inner critic holds so much of the weight or we give a lot of the weight to the inner critic, thereby allowing it to determine our behavior and our action and our pursuits. This happens especially when we're not aware of the inner critic and how contradicting it is to our wiser voices. While we may not readily have control to shift immediately the systems around us, we have the agency over making conscious the ways in which we internalize these systems and how they oppress us from the inside out. Mia Mingus, a transformative justice and disability justice advocate and the author of an amazing blog called Leaving Evidence, said, we can start with our self-accountability and the ways that we don't show up for ourselves. We can acknowledge how most of us are in an abusive relationship with ourselves. We blow past our own boundaries. We punish and beat ourselves up in terrible ways. We can start with the ways we treat and talk to ourselves. Ways that we would clearly recognize as abuse if it were being done to another person. After all, our abusive relationship with ourselves lays the groundwork for an abusive world. The inner critic's deepest intention is to protect us. This abusive, demeaning, doubt-inducing voice is ultimately, beneath all the shit, trying to protect us. This is why the inner critic has evolved to stay with us, as a strong part of our psyches, because in some cases, it has actually protected us from taking bigger risks or putting ourselves out there. 
The inner critic is very conducive for surviving. It keeps us small and quiet sometimes, or just loud enough to be accepted. Though, it's not necessarily supportive for thriving. While it's kept us safe, perhaps rather anxiously, doubtfully, or resentfully so, it may also keep us from acknowledging and pursuing our dreams, from exploring, connecting, creating, learning, and living bold and courageous and extraordinary lives. This is an important point because I hope as you hear it and even remember it, if you already know this, that it brings in a bit of compassion for the inner critic. Safety is a basic human need, and the inner critic keeps us safe. And the inner critic is basic and human. Now, because it's such an inherent and sensitive part of our psyches, we react to it automatically and primally. Just as we would react to attacks outside of us, like a driver on the road who cuts us off, or someone dissing us on Twitter, we fight, we flight, we freeze, we appease. Fight, flight, freeze, and appease. It's our typical primal stress responses from attacks outside of us and from attacks inside of us. When it comes to the inner critic, fighting looks like arguing with it. The inner critic might say, You're not doing enough. You're selfish. And a reactive voice immediately comes back to say, I'm doing my best. I'm enough. I'm enough. I'm enough. Sometimes trying to use affirmation to trump the inner critic renders affirmations more harmful than helpful. It's kind of like a spiritual bypass. Fighting it could also look like intellectually debating it or rationalizing against it. Inner critic might say, You're not making any sense. No one is going to understand you. And a reactive voice thereby says, I'm making precise sense. I read a book about this last week, and if they don't understand me, that's their problem. Fleeing or taking flight from the inner critic could look like distracting ourselves consistently with substance, busyness, procrastination, other people's stuff, and business, and gossip. It could look like avoidance through all the means by which we can avoid and distract ourselves nowadays. Doom scrolling, dating apps, staying at a job we hate because it pays us cash but costs us our life force energy, binging on anything. We can only flee for so long until we're alone in a moment of silence and the inner critic comes back tenfold, making itself be heard. Over time, over neglecting our inner critic, neglecting what it's saying or reacting to it, this manifests as anxiety, depression, and other issues. When we have an unhealthy relationship with our inner critic through fighting it or fleeing it, freezing looks like feeling completely paralyzed on the couch, not knowing how to move forward, completely burnt out to a crisp. This could be a result of fighting or fleeing the inner critic consistently over time. It takes a lot of energy to run away from something or to fight it. And when that is ourselves, a part of ourselves, that's just not escapable. And lastly, appeasing the inner critic 
may look like believing the inner critic to be truth. The inner critic says, You're too old to start a business. You'll fail and then you'll be fucked for life. An appeasing voice comes in and says, You're right. I'm too old. I'm just going to settle for this job that is stable, even though I hate it. There is some other way. There are two, actually, other ways to respond to the inner critic. And this is not automatic by any means. It's very intentional. It's very mindful, conscious, and also a practice. And the first one is an embodied no. This requires us to acknowledge the inner critic first. So if we're in the traps of black or white thinking, if we're noticing there's a lot of uncertainty and you're feeling doubtful and you're feeling rigid in your body, acknowledging that the inner critic may be present is the first step to gaining some sovereignty from it, from creating space from it. So once you acknowledge the inner critic, perhaps the next thing is to say no. No inner critic, enough. With a gesture in the body, this is important because the inner critic lives in the mind. If you notice when your inner critic is running its mouth, the body feels very agitated, aggravated, tense, but also we might be disconnected from the power of the body, from the heart space, from the gut space, from the life force energy that encompasses our full bodies. So here it's really important with a gesture in the body that would allow you to take up more space and assert a boundary to say no or enough or even backseat inner critic in a firm but respectful way. This may put the inner critic in its place. Let's the inner critic know who's actually driving the vehicle. And already by acknowledging the inner critic, again, we're creating some space between us and this voice. This may be sufficient to silence the inner critic in a way that doesn't let us fall down the rabbit hole of what it has to say. And it lets the inner critic know that you got this. You're taking care of it. It doesn't need to take care of it. It doesn't need to protect you. You got it. You got it enough to assert your boundary and to say, no, hop in the back seat, bud. We're good here. Thanks. We know where we're going. And even if we don't know where we're going, I don't need your perspective. If that doesn't necessarily feel sustainable, or possible, or if the inner critic feels stronger than you, which may very well happen at times, certainly happens to me, mindful consent is the other way. This too requires acknowledging the inner critic. And when we acknowledge the inner critic, again creating that space between us and this voice, we intentionally then offer it a container to speak as if it has the talking stick. And this is without us reacting to it, judging it, or trying to fix it. We practice active listening to the inner critic. Now this is kind of radical because we spend so much of our lives not trying to listen to the inner critic. And there's also resources out there that says, don't pay any attention to your inner critic, 
It's a waste of time to hear it out. Everything it says is false. But what I've found is that not listening to the inner critic or constantly meeting it with a no embodied or otherwise or reactions of fight, fleeing it, freezing or appeasing to it only strengthens it. Mindful consent is a way to approach the inner critic with some compassion. And let's not forget, when we're talking about the inner critic, we are talking about a separate entity within ourselves, but a part of us nonetheless, a shadow part of us. So mindful consent is approaching one of our shadows with permission to exist, with consent to be heard. And there's a lot of magic that can unfold when we give permission to a shamed and shaming part of ourselves that just wants to be heard. All parts of us, all of us want to be heard and seen. I found that the inner critic ends up flowing into one of two things when this process occurs. When we give space to the inner critic, and listen, it could be for five minutes, it could be for 50 minutes, whatever time you have. Giving it a container to be heard, to be checked in on. The inner critic either becomes speechless, it has no more to say, or it just repeats stuff that it's already said that we've already acknowledged and heard. This is allowing it to express from the back seat. We're recognizing that it's here, but that it's not driving the car or navigating us from shotgun. We're not trying to throw it out of the car because guess what? We can't. It's going to come back more agitated, bigger, even louder. We're acknowledging that it's here and it could have a back seat. And it's in the back seat because we are consenting to it. Consent is power here. Compassion is power here. Now, when we do this, we might even notice that the sensations in our bodies or the feelings that come up when inner critic is present are more acute, are more intense. Now, this is not a bad thing. This is not a bad thing at all. You are making space for the reality of how your body responds when the inner critic is present. You're just more aware of it. At least in this case, you're conscious of it, you're tracking it, and it's not just toxifying you insidiously. And you're not trying to escape it. You're assisting it to move through you. And this is when it's super necessary in the practice to come back into the body. Again, the inner critic lives in the head. So when we're giving it a container to speak, we're existing heavily in the headspace by being a facilitator to give it voice if we say it out loud or write it in our journal. And coming back into the body allows us to step more fully into our power. So much of our body holds the power and the wisdom that we do want to be driven by and navigated by. So coming back into our body is pivotal here. And it could take five minutes. It could be dancing to a song, getting some fresh air, playing with a pet or preparing and drinking some tea or a snack, taking a cold or hot shower, stretching. Again, even just for a few minutes. After we come back into our bodies, we might feel a space between us and the inner critic. The space is precious. The space is important. When we access more 
of our wiser and powerful voices in a place of space and not just in debate or in fighting the inner critic, there's space for us to actually receive the messages from our wisdom in the space that we've cultivated by either saying no or yes to the inner critic in consciousness and compassion, who wants to emerge then? Who wants to step up to the podium and be heard? Is it a nurturing, courageous, loving, ancestral, elemental part of us? Is it our inner mother or our inner child or our higher self? And what do they want to say? Now, rather than having to argue and debate with the inner critic and fight for bandwidth, the wise presence within us has space to really land with us. And we have space to actually receive it and see how it feels on its own. I just described an exercise that I have a template for on the site, and I'll link it in the show notes. It's a T-chart template. It's a practice that I engage with frequently, and because I've been doing it for a while, I often do it mentally, but when I'm doing something big and bold and differently than I have before, I will go to my journal. And when I have to actually distinguish the inner critic from my wiser voices, I have to see it on the page. It helps me distinguish the inner critic from myself and my wisdom. And it gives all parts of me their due space to be seen and heard without necessarily controlling my behavior in harmful or oppressive ways without my awareness. This is shadow work. And it allows all parts of us to be seen and acknowledged, which thereby then gives us a choice of who we actually want within us in the driver's seat, in the shotgun seat, and in the back seat. And in the trunk even, shoot, sometimes that needs to happen. Throw them in the boot. If you want some support in recognizing your inner critic, reach out. I work with folks one-on-one and in the three-month abundant creativity program, we go more into the inner critic and the inner nurturer as it relates to our liberatory creative practices. recognize that you are not your inner critic. And while your inner critic could be seen and heard from the back seat, your wisest, highest, and kindest voices can be the primary drivers and navigators of your life. If you found resonance with this podcast, go ahead and subscribe and write us a review. This helps us significantly to get the podcast out to more listeners like you. Thanks in advance.